Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about a whole lot of things going down in the Middle East. It's kind of all over the place, so I can't yeah, can't like target just one. Uh, all of them pretty interesting. We have that. We have the revival of the Anglo-French rivalry on the geopolitical stage and a border skirmish between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So we have rocket attacks on Jerusalem this morning uh, that have really shaken the capital uh, of Israel. Uh, amidst rising tensions we've kind of been covering a little bit here, uh, namely between them and, well, internally them in Palestine, externally them in Iran. Um, although, well see where that goes. Um, I do believe that given the string of provocations between the two, uh, eventually this is going to lead to like a straight up declared war. That is my stance on this. And the continued escalation, like, I don't know, rockets hitting the capital city of Israel, only seem to point in that direction to me. Now, maybe something else is going on behind the scenes, but from what I can see, they are on a collision course, and I say Israel and Iran, despite this being a rocket attack f from within Palestine, if I'm not mistaken, it was the Gaza Strip. Uh, I say that because the Palestinians are kind of backed by Iran uh, in the sense that Iran and the Palestinians are uh, straight up anti-Israel and anti-Israeli. So they're kind of de facto allies. Then you have Hezbollah and Lebanon to the north of Israel. Uh, it, you, can, you can kind of see the ease of connection between these countries and entities that don't like Israel, uh, finding it very easy to mess with and harass Israel when they work together or just in tandem with one another. Iran has kind of, you know, been restrained, if that's the word to use, uh, by the presence of, say, the United States and the sanctions regime that really hurt them. But now they have the lifeline of China and a de facto ally in Russia be uh, from backing the same Assad government in Syria's civil war. An Assad government that is winning. So Iran is effectively having its sphere of influence consolidated right now with the assistance of Russia backing Syria. And they're getting a lifeline from China via that massive infrastructure deal that they struck a couple weeks back when they signed on to the Belt and Road. So they're going to have a market for their oil that's immune to sanctions. You can't stop Iranian trade with China. 
So I'd imagine that in time, Iran will start to really go on the offensive here too, or like a counter-offensive instead of it just being Israel, 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 just smacking Iran around. Eventually, Iran's going to retaliate, and how the Israelis respond to that, I don't know. I just know that the way it looks now, these two are on a collision course to war, and the Palestinians will be more than happy to side with the Iranians on that issue. So that's Jerusalem. Uh, we have, I mentioned the the Assad, there we go, the Assad government winning the civil war. And we have Saudi Arabia, who has begun talking to the Assad government again after all this time. Uh, and this is likely the Saudi Arabians also recognizing that the war in Syria is almost over and that Assad is highly likely to win unless something ridiculous happens in the last minute. Or maybe he lets his guard down and some revolutionaries take over and somehow consolidate control of the country without it breaking up like it was before. But again, it looks like Assad is going to win. Is going to win. Uh, he has the backing of Russia. He has the backing of uh, Iran. And now we're seeing him being his government being re-recognized by the likes of Saudi Arabia, another major regional power to their south. And this is probably going to be like just the first domino, because Arabia is huge in Middle Eastern politics, uh, just from its sheer size and wealth. So if they're doing this, I'd imagine it won't be long before the other countries in the Gulf do this as well, namely the Arabian, the Peninsula Shield, and that'll probably lead to Israel recognizing them as well. We'll have to see. Israel has the ability to go like independent of this. They are de facto allied with Arabia. And therefore de facto allied with Arabia's allies. But they're not official allies for a reason. So we could see Israel refuse to recognize Assad. And we'll probably see America refuse to recognize Assad. But that'll be largely irrelevant given the current status of things. So that's Arabia. Meanwhile, we have, and just to the north of Arabia and Syria, we have Turkey, who is in the process of drafting a new constitution. Um, there, It's still in the works, but it's meant to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the modern Turkish Republic that we know today as Turkey, and to really, like, clarify things that may or may not have gotten lost over time. And probably to also set the agenda towards where they want to move forward with their country. Because this is kind of a big deal. A new constitution. Not a constitutional amendment. A new constitution. So, this is going to be a pretty huge deal that eats up their attention span of the Turkish government and the Turkish people for uh, uh, probably a while. And it'll be interesting to see what the finished product gives us. Because we know Erdogan and a number of other Turkish people living in Turkey would very much like to return to being the Ottoman Empire with all the wealth and prestige that came with that. So we'll see how much of that influence gets woven into this new constitution, especially given that Erdogan is currently in charge and has purged anybody who doesn't like or agree with him. So it's highly likely his agenda could be the dominant agenda 
that is laid forth in this new constitution. Well, again, we'll have to wait and see, but I think it'll be very interesting when it comes out, which is why I wanted to talk about the fact that it's happening now. And we have Afghanistan. Uh, Yes, yes, Afghanistan. The Afghan military has claimed to have taken out 180 Taliban fighters. And they make this claim in the aftermath of a strike that the Taliban carried out on, well, in a day. They, They carried it out on 141 separate targets and across the country. And they killed 20 people and injured 100. So... Not the worst thing that could have possibly happened, but is really a testament to just how far-reaching their influence can be, or, well, not it can be, how far-reaching it is, and where they can hit whenever they want to, which is, as they've demonstrated, anywhere in the country of Afghanistan. And it is my estimation that as America pulls itself out from this region, assuming that's the case, as we remove ourselves from this region, and NATO is therefore forced to leave as well, because they can't support themselves logistically if we're not there, we being America, the Taliban will probably win their civil war. Again, it's important to remember that the Afghan government is in a civil war with the Taliban on the other side of that divide. The Taliban is likely to win, and they're demonstrating what they can do right now. Now, I said this would happen, Uh, not specifically this, but I said that they would start getting aggressive, very aggressive, after May 1st, which is the the deadline for U.S. troops pulling out. The new deadline is September 1st, but I said we violated our end of the deal, and now they're going to start acting in ass. And why wouldn't they? Why would they stand still when the deal has been breached? We didn't negotiate a new deal with them. We, the Biden administration, just said we're going to leave on this new date and not the one that was agreed to with the Taliban. So now the Taliban's basically saying, well, if you're going to do what you want to do, we're going to do what we want to do. And what they want to do is unify their country under their rule. Which is, again, likely to be exactly what happens. And, well, they, they've shown everyone just how far-reaching they can be. And we'll have to see where they choose to focus fire next time. Because I don't think they're going to do another mass attack like this. Um, well, they might. But I believe... That at some point they're going to consolidate forces to do something big. Because this is, is huge in scale, not so much huge in material damage. 20 people dead, 100 people injured, that's really bad. But 141 attacks, that's the real thing. It's 141 attacks over the course of a single day. That's the real impressive feat here. So... It'll be interesting to see what they do with this capability that they've clearly laid out to us that they have within their own country. So, we'll keep our eyes on that. But in other news, we have the U.S. Fifth Fleet, uh, who, while on patrol in the Arabian Sea, has seized a shipment of weapons 
featuring anti-tank missiles, sniper rifles, and machine guns, uh, most of them Russian and Chinese made. It is currently unknown as to where that shipment was heading, uh, as to where that shipment was heading, but it's a pretty interesting thing. We don't we don't know too much about it for now. We don't know where it was going. We can kind of gather where it may have come from. Maybe it was China. Maybe it was Russia. Maybe it was just maybe it was just uh, someone who had lots of spare Russian and Chinese military equipment and decided, yeah, I'll I'll sell it to somebody. Who knows? Maybe they they interrupted somebody's Amazon shipment. But I don't think <laughs> I think it's a little bit bigger than that. So. We really don't know, but it was an interesting thing to see nonetheless. It definitely grabbed my eye when I read it. But uh, there's also NATO uh, doing the European Defender drills, in... which didn't go so well. So basically, what happened was they had NATO. Uh, which was mainly uh, the U.S. forces and a number of other countries who participated held a drill in the Balkans. And what they discovered during this drill was that they would have a really, really hard time mobilizing people. They would have a really, really hard time coordinating the various armies and getting them to work with one another as well as getting them to move. It would take a while, not just for them to mobilize, but for them to move across a given terrain. So this is the absolute last thing you want to hear uh, with regards to your military alliance. These are literally, if there was a checklist of some of the worst things you could hear about your military alliance, this would be the list. Bad logistics, bad coordination, and maybe bad leadership, although that'll only be found out during a war, but who wants to find that out during the war when you have the other problems to deal with, too? So, it doesn't seem that NATO is as strong as a lot of people would like to believe it is, and that sends a message to countries that would like to challenge NATO and whatever order NATO has brought chief among them probably being Russia, uh, but I don't think they'll go after the Baltics this soon. They seem to be tied down in other things, uh, and I'll kind of cover that later. But, yeah, this kind of, maybe it's just bias for me, it's kind of like a confirmation bias for me, in that I don't think NATO has a real purpose, at least not since the fall of the Soviet Union, and... For me, this kind of just proves that it's really just the United States uh, issuing a sort of blanket protectorate over most of Europe, and most of Europe just goes along with it, because why wouldn't they, you know? And now we're seeing that when, if push came to shove, the alliance would crumble under its own weight. The weight of all those different languages the weight of the lack of communication between them, I, you'd think that that problem would have been uh, dealt with a long time ago, uh, to the point where we would have 
the communications down to a T, but I digress. That's not the case, or at least it's no longer the case. So you have bad communication, bad logistics, bad mobilization. That's a recipe for disaster by itself. It would, in the event of a war, it would be the Americans holding the, their own line with nobody else uh, because either nobody else could m muster and mobilize the troops or because nobody else was able to know where the front line was because the communication was just terrible. So, it seems to me NATO is being exposed as being a rather weak entity, a much weaker entity than we thought it was. And by we, I mean other people. <laughs> so, we'll see. I don't think this is going to lead to a breakup of it. And, you know, that's that never seems to be an option for most people. But it does raise major questions about what will happen in the event that the NATO alliance actually has to do something. And my guess is the whole thing falls apart. And the whoever's stuck actually fighting the war is stuck fighting that war by themselves. That's what I believe is going to go down. In the event that a real crisis hits NATO, that's what I think is going to go down. In other news, we're going to drop down across the Mediterranean, we have Tripoli. Uh, a hotel was raided in Tripoli by militants. Now, this hotel is significant because it's frequently used by the Provisional Unity Government Council members. Uh, and the Provisional Unity Government Council are effectively the executive branch of the interim government of Libya. Now, for those who don't know, we've talked about a little bit on this little podcast that Libya has been in a civil war for a while. And a number of nations in the UN came together and said, hey, let's mediate, let's try to mediate a peace. So what's happening now is they're setting up, an, again, an interim government and they're going to hold elections for the new government in December. Now, I screwed up thinking because I thought it was December of last year, but it's December of this year, and I can confirm that much. Uh, so they're going to be holding new elections for the new government in December of this year. And for the time being, we have uh, a, a civil war that's pretty stalemated. You have the Libyan government, who is backed by Turkey, and you have General Hafdar, who is backed by a number of other outside powers, Egypt and Arabia and France, there we go, to name a few, who are backing the Libyan rebels, the General Hafdar and his forces. So, that's the current situation in Libya, and... Has it's opened the door. We've noted that it's opened the door for Turkey to step in and play its hand as a major power, or or at the very least, a very powerful regional power. And I believe that the Libyan government will probably win this civil war. And should they win that civil war, it would be friendly grounds. For Turkish troops. And that, that'll be the compensation. Hey, 
we helped you out during your civil war, you maybe look the other way while our troops move through your country. How about that? Maybe you subordinate yourself to us, like like Northern Cyprus. Maybe you do whatever we tell you to do, and we call ourselves the Caliphate, and you're just a member of the Caliphate. <laughs> maybe that's kind of the gist of where I believe that's going to go, and that would open up the door for potential military action against Egypt, which I believe is going to be one of Turkey's greatest regional um, rivals, greatest regional rivals, uh, Egypt, Iran, Arabia, Israel, are all right, at the top of my list, um, I keep stuttering, I'm trying to put my thoughts together, but I, <laughs> my vocabulary is not failing me, but my putting sentences together skills are just a little bit, so excuse me, stuttering but yeah so you have Libya and their provisional government and I have made it clear in the past I don't think this provisional government either now or after the election is going to hold simply because neither side is willing or ready to make peace yet they haven't they haven't fought it out for long enough basically they both sides still want to win and neither of them are ready for concessions and when you have two entities that are in that stage of the conflict you're not going to go anywhere it's just really hard to go anywhere if you don't have both parties engaged in the peacemaking process so you'll probably have this temporary peace maybe it doesn't even look like they're getting the temporary peace um but even if they get that peace, you're going to have these militias acting on their own. Because remember, this is militants in Tripoli who have raided a hotel frequently used by the Provisional Unity Government Council. And the Tripoli itself also has a number of other militia groups who have already stated that they're not abiding by the results of that election in December. They're, they're just not going to abide by it. And what do you do? What do you do after that? Where do you go? Is is there too much you can do? Uh, shoot, I don't know. But all I know, well, all I think I know is that that government is not going to hold because I'm pretty darn sure that the militants and militias in Tripoli aren't the only ones who feel that way uh, on their side of the conflict. And on General Hafdar's side of the conflict. I don't think either of them are ready to have peace. And when the peace fails, I believe that's when Turkey steps in fully. Or somebody else. It'll either be Turkey or somebody else at some point. So when the peace fails, we look out for who can reach this area. We did an uh, episode talking about that. It could be France. I'll be honest, it could be France. Italy can, but they have no reason to. They they win. They have a win-win situation here. No matter whose natural whose gas pipeline goes through the Med what part of the Mediterranean, it ends up in Italy. Both of them. The Qatar Turkey. The 
uh, Turkey to the Mediterranean. Either way, Italy gets natural gas sh- pumped straight into Italy because that's just the geography benefiting the construction. Italy's geography makes it easy, easier than moving through the mountains of the Balkans, even along the coastline of the Adriatic Sea. Italy wins, no matter who wins in this civil war, well, unless something weird happens, so they're not going to step in. That leaves France, and Turkey, and the United States. America has surprisingly left this civil war alone, so they're out of the picture for now. Thank goodness. That leaves France and Turkey. That's, and I'll leave it at that. Well, I will leave it at that. So, we'll move on now. I brought up France, and we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about France. Because France, and we're kind of still in the Middle East here, but I brought up France, and France has begun a pressure campaign, an unofficial one, but a, a pressure campaign, nonetheless, against Lebanon who, I'll add, is a former colony of the French, and the French are trying to forcefully bring about a parliamentary government in Lebanon. And they're doing this because Lebanon promised to reform itself into a parliamentary government in exchange for the economic aid France provided to them in the aftermath of last year's explosion. Uh, I'm pretty sure all of you remember that massive explosion that went off in Beirut. The one that looked like a nuke went off in this city. That's the one we're talking about here when France stepped in. We kind of talked on this podcast about France showing showing up after the explosion went off to sort of help Lebanon. But now we can sort of see the broader scope of what they proposed. And now we can sort of see maybe an end game that was here all along. Because I'm sure I'm sure the French know that Lebanon, who is in a civil war, is in no position to be making reforms like of this kind to their government right now. I'm sure that they must have already known that. And if they didn't, well, then they've accidentally done something that has given them a whole lot of leverage. Or... Because they given this given Lebanon this aid, and Lebanon's like, okay, well, what do you want in exchange? We want you to change your government type. Why would the Lebanese government do that when they're already fighting for legitimacy in their I don't know. It seems like a setup to me. It seems like a setup for potential French occupation. Like the French are currently doing in a lot of East, not East Africa, in a lot of West African countries in the Sahara. We talked about Chad and how Chad was helping France in their crusade against militancy in the heart of Africa. So we'll see what the French do in this situation. I felt like it was important to talk about, and so I did. Uh, Moving on, the EU has authorized... The U.S., Canada, and Norway to join in their, well, to join in their project, which is aimed at increasing military mobility throughout Europe. And, well, given what we just saw with the NATO exercises, Defender of Europe, 
This is likely in response to what just went down in that nonsense. Uh, so they want better infrastructure and better ability to mobilize, really. And it's a necessity, given that Europe is dependent on NATO for its defense, and that is as true for the European Union as it is for each individual country within the EU. Uh, yes, yes, within the EU. I was about to say, well, within the NATO. No, within the EU, they are dependent on the security umbrella of NATO, which has lots of overlap with the EU, but is slightly different. Well, majorly different in that it has the United States and Turkey in it. So, there's that. I thought it was interesting to at least note they that they to at least know that they know something ain't right with these military drills. Maybe we need to do something. So, very interesting thing there. Meanwhile, we have Canada seeking to build two new icebreaker ships. The icebreaker. Yeah. Yes, yes. Canada's building an icebreaker. Although I'll say that they're a bit late to the party. They're a bit late to the party. Uh, the Suez crisis that happened a couple weeks back would have been the perfect opportunity to announce something like this, like Russia did, and really promote the Northwest Passage, which is the passage that goes along Canada's northern border and then exits through the Bering Strait which is the body of water, the strait between Alaska and the far easternmost part of Russia. That's the Bering Sea, and the little gap between the two pieces of land is the Bering Strait. So, either way the passage goes, America does technically have lots of geopolitical leverage over such a route, um, whether or not they'll choose to exercise it. Uh, probably. I'll, I'll just I'll throw my head into that ring, depending on who's president, anyway. But major missed opportunity for the Northwest Passage. But at the very least, the Canadians have remembered that they have it, and they're building two new icebreaker ships now. Because the Russians were building like eight, if I'm not mistaken. So to really, really make that Northeast Passage along their northern coastline. A viable route and they'll probably have to build some poor would they build ports up there I don't know it doesn't seem like the type of place you'd build ports at I mean it sound it just sounds expensive imagine building a port in Siberia the northern coldest most always frozenest part of Siberia yeah that sounds like a good idea I think I'm pretty sure the Russians know exactly how much of a good idea it is. Yeah, it's so much of a good idea that they decided that building icebreakers and sailing you along the entire coastline before you get to port is a better idea. <laughs> but I'll digress. I think the Canadians have wisened up, and they're taking advantage of the aftermath of the Suez Crisis and the current search for alternatives, taking after Russia's lead. And this is a good thing for Canada. It'll bring them lots of trade revenues if they decide to levy. It'll at the very least make them 
more important uh, than they are now. They're the friendly country that's really far away and out of the way. But having a major trade route going through your territory would make you important. An important friendly country. And would basically let them fully leverage their soft power as, you know, Canada. Well, because why would you send your ships along the Northeast Passage against a passive-aggressive Russia when you could send them to the Northwest Passage through friendly Canada? They're safe. The Americans are there. and They can defend the trade. Good, good times all around. But, um, yes. We'll see where things go with this. I speculated the damage was already done to the Suez. And it seems that I was right. On the, in other news, the Ethiopian government has condoned the classification of the Tigray rebels as terrorists, because why wouldn't they? Uh, meanwhile, Teodoro Loxin Jr., the foreign secretary of the Philippines, has made waves when he told the Chinese to, quote, get the fuck out. Now, he was talking about the West Philippine Sea, not like get out of the room. And here's the full quote. China, my friend, how politely can I put it? Let me see. Oh, get the fuck out. What are you doing to our friendship? You, not us, we are trying. You look like an ugly oaf forcing yourself forcing your attentions on a handsome guy who wants to be a friend not a father to a Chinese province wow (laughs) so we can see kind of what I've been saying here in that countries around China are more than happy to integrate with them economically but largely don't want to be under China's thumb geopolitically or militarily and that's kind of the multi-layered dynamic of that cold war happening in south and southeast asia well south southeast and east asia that's kind of the theater of operations there really big one featuring lots of billions of people but that's the theater of operations and it's complex it's interesting to watch and like i said the Philippines is a wild card. And this proved my point. But now, we're going to transfer, you know, 30 minutes later, we're going to transfer into the meat in just a moment. All right, and we are back. Here to talk about the revenge of the Anglo-French rivalry. Now, what do I mean? What do I mean? I mean French fishermen imposed a blockade on a British port. Unacceptable. War. <laughs> but no, this is this is an effective blockade from French fishermen who operated off the islands of Jersey. Well, the island of Jersey. Jersey is a part of a, a string of multiple islands just off the coast of France uh, that actually belonged to the UK and not France. So... These fishermen, who are close to home, really, using the waters that belong to Jersey to fish, um, blockaded the port because they got angry. Now, why did they get angry? 
Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Because the French fishermen kept the fishermen from Jersey from leaving the island. And, well, kept them from fishing too. This situation here originated from new rules that were issued by local authorities on Jersey that required foreign fishermen to get new contracts that effectively proved that they were permitted to fish in Jersey's waters. Uh, seems pretty normal there. The French fishermen did not like this, and so here we are. Now, France, uh, the French government, I should say, make, make that little distinction there, France threatened to shut off power to the island over this issue. Uh, and an interesting thing to note here is that Jersey gets most of its power from France and not from Britain, probably just due to proximity and the costs of transferring and ferrying material to the island for it to generate its own power. It's probably very expensive, which is why they're not doing it. But the situation escalated to the point where the UK sent a destroyer to deal with the situation, to which the French responded by preparing one of their own destroyers to go do the same uh, over this tiny island and the waters around it for fishing. And we know that fishing and fishing rights have been a major point of contention between the British and the EU. Uh, because everybody likes to fish in British waters, apparently. I suppose the Mediterranean doesn't exist. Or the Baltic Sea. Or the Bay of Biscay. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> We're not going to talk about it. Lots of places you can fish, but people really like those British waters. So fishing was a major point of contention. And it appears it's a major point of tension still, not between the British and the European Union, but between the British and the French, which makes it all the more interesting. Um, yes, the mess, this mess was ultimately resolved when the destroyer sent by the UK came and peacefully dispersed the French fishermen the peacefully is not in quotation marks like it is when we talk about Russia, but they kind of just showed up on the on the horizon and the fishermen scattered very, very quickly. I'm sure the people on the island of Jersey are very happy about this, and the British have gained a lesson in why keeping their navy strong is important. Maybe they'll... <laughs> maybe they won't sacrifice ships to build supercarriers and don't make a proper navy. Regardless, a very important, and I say important because one, again, it's reminded, likely reminded the UK of the importance of its navy for protecting its overseas assets, in this case, a actual territory that is British, not like an overseas colony, but like this is British clay that they had to use their navy to properly defend and enforce their law. So the importance of the British Navy is being highlighted yet again. So we can probably expect more effort to go into their shipbuilding process. And that'll have implications moving forward. But another thing that was more important 
well, at least more important to me, is a question that this kind of brought up in what we can clearly see as rising tensions between the UK and France over various issues, uh, with the Brexit really just being the tip of the iceberg, and now everything, almost everything, they just come to blows with France over. So it led me to ask a question, and that is, will the English Channel be yet another flashpoint in the ever-evolving geopolitical landscape? It's weird to think. It's really weird to think, because like for a really long time now, British Channel, well, the British, the English Channel has been like this safe zone, because again, for a while, the British and French were allies. They were, how wait, how long have they been allies? I mean, since what? Since Ger- the formation of Germany, a little bit uh, shortly after Germany became a country, the British and French put their rivalry aside to deal with the bigger power that was Germany. And they've been on the same side, like in an official capacity, ever since then. And even before then, you saw them team up against Russia. Uh, imagine Britain and France teaming up against somebody. Would have been unthinkable back then. Probably was unthinkable in the 1900s when they teamed up before World War One, and when they kept the alliance strong before World War Two. And then they were both part of NATO for the Cold War. So, for a really long time, the English Channel has been a very, very safe place to be if you were a British fisherman, French fisherman, if you were a British sailor on a military vessel, if you were a French sailor on a military vessel. Because Britain and France were on the same side, they were on the same page. But now, as these tensions are causing those relations that friendly cordial relationship to sort of deteriorate back down to kind of closer to what it used to be, it raises the question in my mind, again, will the English Channel be yet another flashpoint in the ever-evolving geopolitical landscape? We're seeing a lot of old tensions and rivalries start bubbling up again, and it seems that the English and the French are no exception. So as far as the question, will it become another flashpoint? It's starting to seem that way. And this is, from my opinion, mainly due to France lashing out in all directions over various issues. We have saw them uh, lashing out against Hungary, kindling old rivalries between them and the old Habsburg dynasties. Not quite the same thing, but sort of them and that general area of the world, we've seen them uh, lashing out against Britain over exports, vaccines. Well, vaccines was more of an EU thing, but over exports and the migrants and Brexit itself, we've seen them lashing out against Germany over various domestic policies. We've seen them lashing out against Turkey for Turkey's actions in the Eastern Mediterranean. We've seen them really just lashing out in all directions. Interestingly enough, they have been trying, or at least 
on paper, they've been trying to mend relations with Russia. So at the very least, they had an ally in mind. So, which if they could secure it would be huge. If they could secure Russia as an ally, that would that would be huge for the geopolitical landscape of Europe. But we see France rekindling all these old rivalries from it constantly lashing out over every little thing. And now we have to ask, are there new flashpoints? And I think that this incident with these fishermen shows us the English Channel could very easily go back to being a point of contention between the great rivals, Britain and France. And that was a very interesting uh, story to look at. I know history nerds will probably take great delight in that. But really looking at the context of how long the two have been on the same side, it is a pretty astonishing thing to think about the English Channel being a, a zone where you really don't want to be in the event of a conflict. Whereas it used to just be the English Channel is the safe spot because you have Britain and France on the same team. Now they're not. In an age where it's easier probably than it's ever been to shoot and sink a naval vessel with anti-ship missiles, hypersonic anti-ship missiles, land-based air assets, it's really never been easier to sink a ship and at this point in time and technological development now the english channel runs the risk of becoming a flashpoint and that has implications i don't think the british and french governments are thinking about at least not yet but it is implications that we can speculate about and the speculation on that is juicy. But now, I'll talk about another seemingly insignificant thing that I would, uh, given what I looked into, I would say is probably going to be more important than a whole lot of people may think. And not just for the geopolitics of the region, but for what it forebodes, what it is sort of foreshadowing for other countries in other conflicts in the future. And that is a border skirmish that went down between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. So Tajiks and Kyrgyzstanis living in a border village near the Tajik territory of Voruk got into an argument. They got into an argument over the local water pump that's what they got into an argument over for so let's they got into an argument over the local water pump likely over who was getting what water and it escalated into a riot which then escalated even further when military personnel from both countries arrived on the scene and got into a shootout with one another armored vehicles and all. So I really want you to sort of think about that. Argument over water pump. Riot over water pump. Whole border skirmish over water pump. 
So now that now that we've kind of set the stage there and really got the image into our heads, turning a local water dispute into a brief but lethal armed conflict. That's what happened. The military showed up and turned this dispute into a brief but lethal armed conflict. And when the shooting stopped, 50 people were dead. Over 150 injured, 20 homes, 8 shops, uh, those were burned out, like, because fires were set to them, and a school was destroyed. So, for perspective, we'll just go back to an earlier part in this podcast episode. This skirmish, which happened for a couple hours, if I'm not mistaken, uh... Killed and injured more people than the Taliban striking across all of Afghanistan. More people were killed in this incident than were killed by the Taliban. The Taliban killed 20 and injured 100. This skirmish killed 50. And injured 150. So that's 200 people. uh, Impacted by this. 200 people. In a matter of hours. So. uh, It's pretty big. In comparison. Likely due to the. Likely due to professional military forces. Coming into contact with one another. In the middle of a town. So, easier for casualty rates to go up. I'll say that much. But you can see in some of the videos on this that there are partially destroyed armored vehicles laying on the side of the road. And I'll I'll just add that it's kind of an intriguing sight to see. It does spark... It's an intriguing sight to see. And it sparks intriguing thoughts. Now, the first thought... That it, in, that it sparks within me is the obvious question, which is, will Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan go to war? A war over water. A second thought is, given that this dispute was over a water pump in a small border village, will this be a precursor to other conflicts fought by other countries over their water resources. Because when you think about it, you have other countries in Central Asia. You have Uzbekistan. You have Turkmenistan. And you have Kazakhstan. Who are, these countries are also getting rather self-conscious about their water access. The Uzbeks and the Turkmen's uh, chief among them. You have the Ethiopian Dam, the Renaissance Dam, that is already, we've talked about this before, it's creating very, very strong tensions in their region between them and Egypt. They've effectively bought off Sudan 
uh, with the promise of cheap energy. So they've successfully kept Sudan from siding with Egypt on the issue, which effectively keeps Egyptian troops from ever being able to reach Ethiopia to do something about the dam. They would have to get a rocket that they can fire and accurately hit the dam with. So you have this crisis emerging in East Africa that is going to dry up the Nile. Uh, How badly it hurts the Nile will depend on how quickly Ethiopia decides to fill up the reservoirs of water that come with the dam. And every little increment of speed comes with greater degradation of the lower stream. The downstream, I should say. And the downstream is where most of Egypt gets its food. Most of Egypt grows its agricultural products and its cash crops. The downstream being where most of the Egyptian population lives uh, along the river. Mainly along the river delta, but along the river nonetheless. This dam could cause a humanitarian crisis... That could spark a war where Egypt would probably invade Sudan in an attempt to get to Ethiopia so they could destroy the dam. You you could see it. You could really see it. I mean, it's either that or they have to use their air force to do so and just try to fly over Sudan to get to the dam. And if they destroy it, well... You're going to have flooding. You're going to have flooding and people are going to die. It's going to be a humanitarian crisis. A war fought over water. Just like what we're seeing right here between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Except that war would be fought by military powers, military and economic powers, that were far larger and far more capable than the tiny former Soviet republics of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, who are neatly tucked away into the mountains, who are small, and don't have very, very large populations. Ethiopia and Egypt independently have multiple times the combined population of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Egypt especially, they have over 100 million people. So you'd be talking a crisis far larger than anything Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan could possibly achieve on their own. And that's kind of a scary thought. But one that is intrigued, that one that is kind of popped up in my mind when reading this story and understanding that they're not the only two countries who have issues with water right now. Because you also have to think about the Ukraine and Crimea. Because the Crimeans have gotten, uh, the Crimeans, the Crimeans have rejoined Russia, and Ukraine is building a dam to cut off their water supply. And you've seen, uh, major water shortages on the peninsula of the Crimea. You can't tell if it's a peninsula or a de facto island. I'm going to refer to it as a peninsula. But they've had chronic water shortages for years now since they 
were taken off the hands of Ukraine by Russia. So you have these water shortages, which are going to be intentionally made worse by Ukraine building a dam on the Dnieper River. So Ukraine's going to get power, cut off water to Crimea, so that they're effectively cutting off water to the Russians. And that in and of itself, if people start dying due to thirst, could push the Russians to doing something which they seem to be um, willing to not do right now, which is a direct invasion of Ukraine. The Russians seem to be more than content to just back up the rebels in Luhansk and Donetsk, which are the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine. They, these are the rebel, the Russian separatist rebels in Ukraine that we talk about. Russia seems to be more than content to just let them fight the war with Russian material and occasional support in terms of manpower. Um, Because it keeps Ukraine occupied and it keeps Ukraine tied down in a fight while not necessarily endangering the Russians themselves. In fact, it makes Ukraine weak. They can't crush these two tiny republics. And it just, every day that it goes on, it questions the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government. If Ukraine tries anything, the Russians will step in. If Ukraine doesn't, well, they're going to lose those republics. It's a lose-lose situation Ukraine is stuck in. But the Russians are more than happy to make counter moves, not make direct actions. If, however, people in Crimea start dying because they can't get enough water, well, that's going to put immense political pressure on the Russian government to solve the problem. Now, what would the problem be? Oh, you need more water. Where are you going to get more water? You can do this. You can desalinate the salt water of the Black Sea, which if they could, they would have by now. So it seems like that's not the option that'll be gone with, which leaves the fresh water of the river, the Dnieper River, which is currently being blocked off with a dam. How do you get rid of the dam? Oh, you can just invade and you take the strip of land. And there you have it. I mean, nothing motivates nations to go to war more than their people dying. Well, just nothing is a stronger incentive for war than your people dying, which is part of the reason why the Chechen Wars happened and is probably part of the reason why I see in the future a potential war over water between Ukraine and Russia, like a real war, not the stalemate that we see today where the Ukrainian army is fighting the rebels and they just can't make any ground. No, I mean like, and we we call that Russia fighting Ukraine? No, no, no. I mean like the Russian army actually steps in and systematically dismantles what is left of the Ukrainian army in probably the biggest double envelopment pincer movement we've seen since the Second World War. That would probably be how it goes down and Ukraine would cease existence very quickly. And Russia's frontier would be expanded all the way out to the Carpathian Mountains in a matter of weeks. 
And that could happen due to the water crisis in Crimea. Because, again, the Russians seem content to not do that for the time being. But if their people start dying because they need water, I do not put it past them to put war onto the table for water. And it's an interesting scenario to look at when we talk about, uh, especially now, with the tensions being as high as they are, will Ukraine and Russia go to war? Well, not for no reason. If they haven't gone to war already, that water man, that water, that's reason enough. So we can keep our eyes on how Crimea is doing with regards to water. And if they start doing really, really bad, we can start uh, really, really, really betting on war between Russia and Ukraine that is actually instigated by the Russians this time. Instead of Russia amassing forces on the border in response to a Ukrainian mobilization of troops um, putting them on the the contact line between them and the rebels the rebels would get their independence from Ukraine through the destruction of the Ukrainian state and they would become republics in Russia and so too with the rest of the Ukraine I'm sure the Russians would just declare the rest of the Ukraine under the jurisdiction of the rebel provinces and any other rebels who might have, you know, had an uprising in the process and the territories would be divided up so Ukraine would never be a unified state ever again. And more importantly, would never be able to leave Russia ever again. And that would open the door for a number of other reunifications, quote unquote, between them and other Soviet republics. And that's an interesting path that this can go down. And again, you wouldn't think that we would be thinking about these things based off of a border conflict between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, but it's not that they were fighting, it's what they were fighting over. And that was water. So, those are very interesting things we can look at, but since we're going back to the topic of the actual conflict between them, that leads to the third thought that I have regarding this situation, and that is, at what point does Russia decide to get involved? Because let's be honest, the Russians are very active in the former Soviet space, and we saw it happen uh, with another couple of former Soviet republics when they went to war, and that was with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Armenia was a member of the CSTO, which is the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is effectively Russia's NATO. It encompasses primarily uh, former Soviet republics. Actually, it encompasses all. It only, I should say, it, enc it only encompasses former Soviet republics. It doesn't encompass all of them. The Baltics are in NATO, and I believe Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan are, in, are independent. I think Georgia left, and Arme uh, Azerbaijan left. I'm pretty sure Armenia was still on. But the status of the Caucasus countries' membership in the CSTO is irrelevant now because they're under occupation. And Central Asia is far away, or at the very least it seems that way. But 
the Russians had troops in Armenia. They could have, Armenia could have called them in at any time, but they didn't. The Russians stepped in on their own, and now they're occupying both Armenia and Azerbaijan. As on top of Georgia, but that was for different reasons, the Russo-Georgian War in 2008. But given that track record of intervening in conflicts that happened in the former Soviet space, what will happen in the event that two more former Soviet republics went to war with each other? Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, And there's a key difference here in that this time around, both the warring parties, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, are not only members of the CSTO, like uh, Armenia was, both of them already have Russian troops in their countries, meaning any conflict between them is even more likely to draw in the Russians than even the war in the Caucasus was between Armenia and Azerbaijan, simply due to the presence of the Russian troops there. They... I'm pretty sure the Russians would appreciate uh, not having their troops caught up in other people's wars, even though they're stationed in other people's countries. Which, given any logistical strains that would come with a full-scale semi-occupation of two warring states, um, those logistics are already uh, eased, not strained. They're eased because the troops are already there, which means you would need the logistical capability to keep them there already, which Russia clearly has if these bases and troops are still here. Because these are CSTO members, and Russia has military bases there. In the event that Russia pulled uh, the same thing that they did with Armenia and Azerbaijan, it could potentially happen just as quickly and just as efficiently due to the pre-existing presence of Russian troops in both countries, uh, and the smaller size of both countries. I believe both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are smaller collectively than Armenia and Azerbaijan were, making the occupation easier and probably will cost fewer troops because of the terrain. So long as the Russians let the two parties fight it out enough, you know, let them, let them uh, shoot at each other long enough. Because uh, I, I believe that in the event that there is a war, it would go down very likely, well, very similarly to the war in the Caucasus. Uh, that result would be the thousands of Russian peacekeepers uh, entering the region. And I have a side note here. That <laughs> While I was in the process of typing in peacekeepers in quotation marks, which is what I do whenever I bring up the topic, uh, I only typed in the first quotation mark, and immediately the first word in my suggestion bar was peacekeepers, and I'm just like, wow, even my iPad knows what's up. (laughs) So two former Soviet republics walk into a Russian peacekeeper bar. Stop me if you've heard this one. That anyway, anyway, yes, the Russians would have the logistics to do it. They, again, I'll state this for the millionth time, already have troops stationed in both of these countries. And if 
again, the Russians let the two sides fight it out for a while. Um, like, say, maybe a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks, you know. Maybe a month, you know. Let them, let them really go at it for a while and wear each other down. They, The Russians will be somewhat welcomed by the belligerent countries as a neutral force bringing order. A neutral force that both of them, you know, kind of like. Uh, I, I don't imagine they'd be part of the CSTO if they didn't like Russia. Otherwise, the Baltics would be a part of Russia, but would be a part of Russia. Otherwise, the Baltics and the Ukraine would be a part of the CSTO, but they're not a part of them. In fact, the Baltics are a part of NATO. So, we could see a repeat of the Caucasus War. And it would go down in, for similar reasons uh, as it went down in the Caucasus. You have two countries fighting on Russia's doorstep. Russia can move in. Both of them have positive, mostly, opinions of the Russians. And the Russians stop them from shooting at each other. So, win-win, kind of, maybe, uh, unofficial Russian Republic? Who knows? <laughs> but, in the event that this happened, though, it is unlikely that other countries would get involved or really protest the deployment of more Russian troops as the Russians have been building relations with the countries beyond their periphery. Uh, their periphery being... Um, the territories that used to be the Russian Empire slash Soviet Union, and I know those are two different outlines, but the general area that encompasses Russia and what the Soviet Union was, used to look like, that general area, uh, and you go to the south to where Central Asia is, you can see the countries who Russia has improved their relations with. They've improved relations with Iran and China. Now, looking on a map, this would secure most of what used to be Russia's southern border. Uh, the southern border of the Russian Empire, southern border of the Soviet Union. It secured most of that border. And I say most because, as far as I know, Russia hasn't done the same thing with Afghanistan. Uh, the last country on that southern periphery that they would need to improve relations with. But given the current state of Afghanistan, you know in a civil war with a uh on top of a long foreign occupation force uh it is understandable and not too much of a problem that they don't currently have perhaps the best relations with Afghanistan but that being said it is very interesting that this is what they've done and these are the steps that they've taken uh, improving relations, I mean, and the occupation of the Caucasus. But looking at what's happening now, it's kind of interesting seeing how this little border conflict could potentially foreshadow larger, probably more geopolitically significant events, but it's always the little things that matter. It's always the little things that count. Because... Not just do these, this conflict, this shootout, this straight-up shootout between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan outline potential conflicts for other countries. It outlines the possibility that Russia uh, starts to consume Central Asia. And I brought up that after the Caucasus, they would either focus on Ukraine or they'd go after Central Asia. 
And this seems to open the door for them to go into Central Asia. I wasn't quite sure on how specifically they would go after Central Asia. But if something like this were to go down, where Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have a full-blown war, Russia steps in. And they secure most of that border. And who knows what happens after that. They could go after Uzbekistan. They could go after Turkmenistan and effectively block off Uzbekistan from the rest of the world and make them more landlocked than they already are. Or maybe they just use the new geopolitical landscape to coerce the others into an alliance. Maybe they become unofficial Russian republics too. But who we wouldn't even be talking about these things or these potential power plays had it not been for conflict potential conflict between two much smaller much more seemingly insignificant states it's always the little things everyone it's always the little things but that is all i have for you today now i do hope you've enjoyed listening to today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast the world is changing folks and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus. <laughs>